in a way, the process of seeking understanding. And with reference to a particular realm of understanding which we have the opportunity to explore on retreat and, of course, throughout our lives. The Buddha once said, as he was wont to do, dividing people up into categories, he once said, to distinguish between fools and the wise, that the fools, fools in the world, seek to pursue experience, whereas the wise seek to understand it. And I think this is a very significant distinction to make. To understand that really it's somewhat of a waste of our life to merely pursue more experience, to pursue different and better, more varied, more interesting experiences than the ones we are perhaps at the moment having. That there's much more value, there's much greater depth of possibility much greater significance and authenticity in seeking, rather than to pursue experience, seeking to understand it. And insight meditation is very much founded on this value, on this understanding, that what we're concerned with is understanding the deepest truth of life. And through that understanding, our life becomes meaningful, our life becomes authentic. There's a story that's told of days long ago when there were many lions still living in India. There are very few now. But in this story, this lion was walking through the plains and taking rest under a tree, awoke to find that around him things had changed. When he got up from his nap, he realized that he had somehow, rather mysteriously, come to, to find himself in a, in a large enclosure. That there was this tall fence running through the, the plains and the jungle, enclosing a vast area. And within it, there were all the normal creatures and the, the hills and the forests and the waters that he had been used to in, in the previous time before he went for that sleep. And as he started to explore this new environment, what he discovered, and he was, it was rather interesting, he, he saw as he looked around that there were lions engaging in what appeared to be sporting activities with each other. There were some who were hunting for food or eating, nourishing themselves. There were others who seemed to be engaged in sort of political debates about the state of the economy and the nature of the jungle. And there were, it seemed, everything was unchanged and yet the sense surrounded it all. And so having realised this, having seen the fence, the young lion went up to some of the other lions and asked them, have you seen the fence? What about this fence? And the moment he mentioned the subject, they would immediately turn away. They would disregard him and cease to speak to him. And after having asked quite a few different lions about the fence, this burning question that he felt, what is this? How did it come to be? And each time feeling himself rebuffed, ignored, and somewhat 
isolated, he became rather cautious, rather concerned, and he ceased to ask people, ask the other lions about it. Until one day, as he wandered through the enclosure, exploring its perimeter, he came upon an old, rather sort of scruffy and scrawny looking lioness. And he caught her eye. There's something seemed to glimmer in her eye that encouraged him to ask yet again, to risk perhaps rejection once again, to ask. And he did. He said, excuse me, have you noticed the, um, you know, the, the fence? And she looked straight at him as he said the word and nodded. And uh, he, he couldn't quite believe it at first. And she went on to say, ah, I see that you have good eyes that you're willing to listen to your heart. She said, all the other lions, they are afraid of me because I will not do what they do. I will not engage with them in the activities that they spend their time engaged in because I see that it is meaningless. And she said further to them, do not follow their activities, do not bother yourself with them, but stay with me because there is only one truly important activity in the situation that we find ourselves in. There is only one meaningful pursuit here. That is to investigate and to understand the nature of the fence. The spiritual journey and the practice of insight meditation can be understood as a journey of investigation into reality, as a a journey of understanding, and that that journey of understanding is what carries us towards truth and towards freedom. That there's a fundamental shift that occurs when we shift, when we change our focus from the rather habitual and conditioned tendency to seek to pursue this to seek to avoid that and how much time we spend doing that in our lives and equally we can see ourselves engaging in this on retreat at times seeking to have that pleasant nice concentrated experience wishing to avoid having to be with at times the difficult mind states or the unpleasant body sensations we may experience to shift from putting that emphasis into avoiding what we don't want, pursuing what we would like, to shift that to investigation, to investigate our life, to investigate our experience. And in that investigation, what we start to see is that our experience, no matter what it is, is not ultimately capable of providing us satisfaction. It's not ultimately able to bring to an end the process of seeking for something something other, something different, something new, something better. It seems to go on forever. The Buddha once spoke of this futility of seeking satisfaction in experience, seeking somehow to provide deep meaning and authenticity through the kind of experiences that we may be able to bring about for ourselves. And at the beginning of his spiritual seeking. He asked himself this question, which we might do to ask ourselves also. Why should I 
who is subject to birth, to old age, to sickness and to death. Why should I seek satisfaction in that which is also subject to birth, to old age, to sickness and to death? Would it not be much wiser, would there not be much more possibility of success to actually seek satisfaction in that which is not born, not subject to ageing, sickness and death? And this was the beginning of his process of searching, of seeking. And we may well have reflected perhaps in different language in our own life, in different language, but perhaps along similar paths seeing that we perhaps need to look in a different way, explore from a, a different place in our heart. And we see, when we look at this world, that all the experiences arise only to pass, come only to go, and that there's no satisfaction of itself to be found in those experiences of themselves. And what we do discover as we practice, and particularly in our practice, I think, we start to understand the importance of cultivating a relationship to those experiences, whatever they are, whether they be pleasurable, whether they be painful, whether they be rather neutral and in between. To, to start to cultivate a relationship to them which is not dependent upon the, the content, not dependent on what that experience is, or whether it's pleasant or otherwise that we learn to be present, to actually just open to what is occurring, to just see it as it is, without seeking for it to be other than just as it is. And in that we're asked to be present, to be actually connected with what's occurring. Because if we're not present, we get so quickly and easily drawn into our habits of reaction, into our conditioned grasping for the pleasant, our conditioned fear and aversion towards the unpleasant, and our habitual and conditioned disconnection from the neutral, our unwillingness to stay present and take an interest in that which does not seem to offer anything to us. And what we experience when we get caught in that conditioned reaction of desire, aversion, disinterest, we actually find that we separate from, we disconnect from our experience. We're no longer in touch with a particular thing, whether it be a pain in our knee or the arising of despair and loneliness in our heart. We're no longer connected with that experience. We get lost in a reaction, in a cycle of dwelling and thinking, of processes of mental fabrication really, that draw us into them, that we become engulfed by and consequently disconnected from the actual experience to which we are reacting. And in that disconnection, in that, in a way, becoming lost in the reactivity, lost in the reactive mind, there's a, there's a way in which that's rather like hell. That's like being lost in hell. Because we feel so much pain. There's, there's a sense of, of yearning for something, of looking for something, of through the dwelling and the preoccupation, trying to produce something, and yet failing to. Not being able to actually succeed through our dwelling and preserving that which we wish to preserve and not being able to through our dwelling being able to avoid that which we wish to avoid it simply disconnects us it makes us it, it in a way tears 
the sense of connection with what's occurring, that sense of presence with just what is, is lost in that. And so we, we see when we observe this process the importance, really the crucial importance of simply learning to be present in the face of that reactivity. Present with a sense of acceptance, with a sense of openness that just allows what is there to just be what is there. Without holding, without contraction and resistance, we find that that quality of just being with is actually much more fundamental to determining the quality of our life and the quality of each moment of our existence than what it is, than what the particular thing we are being with or which we are in contact with is. So there's a shift away from being so concerned with the content of the experience to to more being concerned with our relationship to it, no matter what it is. We start to understand that that offers us more for our well-being, that's actually ultimately more nourishing, more more satisfying, more meaningful. And when we're, when we're not present, when we're lost in that reactivity, so often what we find ourselves drawn into is the realms of time, drawn into the past, trying to figure out why this experience happened. If we like it, why it happened, so that we can figure out how to make it happen again. If we don't like it, we want to know why it happened, so we can stop it happening again. Or equally, we get drawn into the future with the experience that we like, wondering how we can keep it. With the experience we don't like, wondering if we'll ever get rid of it, how we can stop it reoccurring. And we see that our mind, our, our, our capacity to be connected, to actually be present, is so easily undermined by that habit and that addiction to the past and the future. The Buddha was once asked why the nuns and monks in his following, why they were so radiant and so serene. And the Buddha replied, they are radiant because they do not brood over the past. They do not hanker after the future. Those who brood after the past and hanker after the future wither and dry up like green reeds cut down in the sun. There's a way I think sometimes we can sense that, that through that dwelling, through being lost in conditioned reactivity of desire and aversion, craving and fear, through being lost in the past, to which that craving and that fear propels us to the past, lost in the future, that we're not, because we're not connected, we're not present, that there's a way in which we lose access to the nourishment, to the, the vitality and the real, the moisture that which provides the moisture of our life, which is the immediacy of our experience. And in that we do sometimes sense a drying up, a withering, a loss of a sense of radiance. And so we start to perhaps investigate a little further what's going on here. We see that when we feel separate, when we feel disconnected from what's going on, when we're lost, in those fabrications of mind, in the past, the future, the dwelling and craving, aversion, and all its different expressions and forms, which we at times have the opportunity to become painfully familiar with on retreat. 
and we see that being lost in all that, lost in that, there's a sense of of deep lack of satisfactoriness. There's a the sense of it's it's not so it's not authentic. It doesn't really touch the depths of our being, and we we start to feel isolated, disconnected, separate from, and divided from what's going on. And we might contrast that to how we feel when we're actually able to connect with what is, with just a simple bare experience. We, we feel that there's an aliveness, a, a real and a, a vital authenticity to it. Though what's occurring may not be special, may not be anything out of the ordinary, but the quality of the connection to it transforms it and equally transforms our experience, our reality, in fact. And, and we start to have a sense that it's not necessary to seek somewhere else than just where we are. It's not necessary to look for something else other than just what is. And we don't need to be in some other place or time to, to really connect with something deep and profound. And we start to, the phrase that comes to mind for me in this context, I remember once doing walking meditation in a retreat, just being struck by this phrase, the richness of the moment. And there might be moments where we just somehow that resonates with us, what, what that might mean, the richness of just this moment. And it's just another ordinary moment, it was just another step of thousands of steps on the same piece of grass that I've been walking up and down. Sometimes we feel that touch. And when we're connected, when we're in touch with the moment, when we are not seeking outside of what is actually there, when we're not looking for something else, when we're not demanding of our, ourselves to be someone else, or to get somewhere that we think we should be, or that we think we should get to, when we're not putting that pressure on ourselves, when we're not looking outside of the present moment, we're open to the truth that is there in each moment. The potential for profound discovery is very near, is very close, is intimate with us in those moments where we're just there, just present, seeking for nothing other than what is. And so we might reflect again on the story of the lion and the wise old lioness. What's this question about the nature of defense? How might that apply to our situation here, to our life? What we see when we look at our lives is that we often experience a sense of being separate. We experience a sense of being disconnected from others, from the world, at times disconnected from parts of ourselves. We have this way of looking at ourselves, at the world and at others as being fragmented and that we are some separate individual entity amongst a number of other separate individual entities who somehow all seem to be sort of interacting in this world, which is something other than us, but as though we are some sort of independent participant or observer of all of this. And we see that sense of separation, that sense of being disconnected and of 
of feeling ourselves to be an individual removed from the whole. How much of that comes out of the conditioned reactivity of wanting or pushing away? How when we grasp after or push away, as I was saying, we have a sense of separation, there's easily a sense of separation, of disconnection that occurs with it. And that equally when we're dwelling in the past and dwelling in the future, lost in our memories and our fantasies, that there's a, a sense of separation that occurs within that. We might not think of it in those terms, we might not conceive it as separation, but there's a way in which I think we also understand that to be the case when we look at it. And yet it's not just this conditioned reactivity that we see, the greed and the anger and the fear. It's not just the tendency to be in the habit, the attraction towards past and future, that actually together with all of this, there's actually a view is a belief we hold, that we cling on to, that we cleave to so closely, that we actually are separate. That it's not just an appearance. It's not just a, a way of using the language, but that it actually is the way it is. And, and we have this view that we're somehow an individual entity, that we're disconnected from the rest of existence, that we're independent, un, unrelated at times, to everything else that goes around us. And yet, in this belief, in this holding on to the sense of separation, of being separate from others, separate from the world, and as I said, sometimes so painfully even separate from ourselves, there's so much suffering, there's so much confusion. And in its most fundamental sense, perhaps, in the context of this practice, investigation is concerned with investigating that sense of separate individuality. Investigating that sense of selfhood is really the investigation of the fence. The fence which appears to create separation, which divides our world in two. What we see as we start to investigate this, as we look more closely, that the sense of self, we start to experience it as a restriction, as an encumbrance, as a, in a way, a prison in which we find ourselves. And it's something which we experience as creating limitation and dissatisfaction in our life. And yet, we so much see the appearance and believe it to be true. We believe it to be true. And yet, the appearance is there. The sense appears. The sense of separation appears. And yet, it's just appearance. It's not ultimately the truth of the situation. We appear separate, but we are not. And there's a, a vast range of ways of exploring this, this reality, this truth, to see that we are not somehow standing behind our experience as the owner of it, that there's no individual separate owner of all of this that's going on. We can't find some enduring, self-existent being or thing or whatever to whom all this is happening. We see it's just happening. 
And yet there's this incredibly pervasive, it seems, and for the most part commonly agreed to view of our ownership of all of that, of being someone who owns all of this experience, who's doing it, who's making it all happen. And we see how in the world the vast majority of people and of social conditions and situations and messages reinforces that. And much as the, the lion in the story, when asking other lions, what about the fence? From most of them got the response, there's no fence, what are you talking about? Don't talk to us about that stupid subject. Because it's threatening to even question its existence. So we might find that many of the people we're in contact with don't have any interest. Perhaps parts of ourselves feel rather uninterested or even threatened by exploring this realm, investigating into what this means. And yet, when we're we're practicing, when we're just there, simply present, what we see is that when there is seeing going on, it's simply seeing. When there's breathing going on, it's simply breathing. When there's thinking, when there's smelling, when there's hearing, tasting, when there's emotions going on, they're simply going on. That it's not us who makes the breath happen. We see the breathing just occur. It's not we who choose all these thoughts and decide when we get up in the morning, oh, I think I'll have a lot of thoughts about anxiety today. Or I think I'll have some thoughts of great exuberance in the afternoon after lunch. We don't plan that. We don't decide it. We just see that it happens. We observe it. And even that observing, while at one level we're cultivating it in our practice, learning to be present. And another way that observing too is merely what occurs. And we can see that there is just this consciousness of what is occurring. And there is what is occurring, just unfolding. We see that this process is unfolding by itself. Seeing is simply seeing by itself. Life is simply living by itself. And we can actually observe this. And that part of what occurs is that the mind pops up and says, yes, and it's me that's watching. Yes, and it's me who did that. I had that good sitting. And I'm going to have an extra portion at lunch or miss out on tea and see if I get some extra samadhi. It's me who's doing that. And I've sometimes had a sense of the way we can understand that as perhaps something like a circus clown. Whenever there's an act on in the circus and the, um, the, you know, the, the acrobats come out on the flying trapeze, do some wonderful acrobatics, or the sword swallower swallows the, you know, the flaming daggers or whatever, and right after their act, the clown comes out and sort of, sort of pretends to go through the motions and suggests that the clown was the one who was actually doing those incredible feats. And, and it, perhaps everyone might just laugh at the clown, enjoying when you know, the clown sort of mimes doing the high trapeze act and saying, yeah, it was me, you know, wasn't I great? And yet after every act, the clown just comes back out and says, yep, that was me, hope you all enjoyed it. There's a way in which we experience our ego much the same. That sense of self, that sense of ownership which believes it's running the show, which believes it's in charge, making it happen and responsible for all that's going on, good and bad. It's sort of like that clown. Things are unfolding, we see them unfolding, and then the next thing that happens, the next circus act, 
is the one that comes out and says, yep, that was me. And sometimes to see that we don't have to stop the clown appearing. We're not trying to say, go away clown, we don't want you. We don't need to throw tomatoes at the clown. But just to see, oh, that's one of the shows. That sense of ownership is part of the show. It's one of the acts. And that sense of self, that sense of, of me, of I, of owning, of being in charge of, however we connect with it, however we experience it, that's just another experience which occurs. It happens by itself. It's not us that's somehow making that sense of self happen. If it was, there have certainly been times for most of us where we would have turned it off if we had a choice about it. Because sometimes it's really uncomfortable. And yet we see we're not making it happen because it's not amenable to our sort of saying, I want it on now and I'll turn it off later. It doesn't work that way. No more than when we open our eyes do we have a choice about whether science enter into our consciousness. And so, we have this tendency to look at what occurs, to look at the experiences that are revealed around us, and particularly the experiences that arise within us. The bodily experience, which we often feel so much as who we are, and we can often feel so much identification with it, and so much pain if it, if it doesn't appear the way we wish it would appear, or the way we think others will like it if it appeared. So much identification with our bodily appearance, with our wish for pleasant sensations, with our wish for good health, for consistent sort of strength and energy. We we we're so sort of we feel so possessive about the thoughts and the emotions that arise, perhaps more than anything else. How we see them coming up. We see these patterns, perhaps some that we enjoy and appreciate, we feel flattered by, others that we fear or that causes pain and we wish would stop and we wish they would go away we wish we could somehow fix ourselves so that they wouldn't be there and yet there's this tendency to, to take it all as though it's mine as though I have to do something with it and yet we don't look out the window and see a tree and this tree is what's appearing in our consciousness in that moment we don't immediately think I'm a tree but if we see a thought of anger arising in us and we just see it's just some anger arising. But how quickly we'll say, I'm an angry person. I mean, we could say, I'm a tree person, looking out the window. But we don't. And yet, if our mind is switched on, thoughts appear in it. If our eyes are open, images appear in it. Is it so different? So we could look, we could examine this to see our habit, our tendency of claiming ownership over these inner experiences. And the, that with the sense of ownership comes that contraction of me. This is who I am. This is really my truth. And there's, it's, it's a rather sad and painful truth and I've really got to work on it to make it into a better one. But of course, no matter how much we work on it, there's always room for more. It just goes on and on. And there's a place for that, of course, attending at times to unhealthy or unbalanced patterns and tendencies in our lives. And yet, Ultimately, we don't have to lose ourselves in that. We don't need to make that into the ultimate goal of our practice. To understand that all this which arises around us and within us, everything that comes, comes to go. 
And in being of that nature of arising and passing, it is not fundamentally the truth of things. It is merely the show, the changing procession of experience being revealed. And that fundamentally, our deepest truth and the deepest truth of life is not defined or limited by the content of our experience. It's not encapsulated or described in terms of what we are experiencing, what is happening to us and around us. That when we start to sense this, we realize, we understand that we are not dependent upon those chance-changing experiences those unreliable, unpredictable experiences of our life. We're not dependent upon that for our happiness. And that the pursuit of happiness in that realm is bound for failure. So we we actually start to sense that as we let go of our fascination with the content, as we let go of our fascination with the the story of what's going on. We become less interested in building up or equally in destroying our ego. We're not so concerned with somehow trying to fix the clown or to fix the circus act. We start to actually let go of all of that. And how much energy can be consumed by it? We'll only realise as we start to let it go. And that in that letting go of that fascination and fixation with fixing ourselves, with making ourselves into something other than just what we are, other than just what is, in that letting go, we start to sense that the deepest truth of life is revealed and can be shown, revealed to us, when we're actually holding on to no thing when we're present to just what is, to just that bare actuality of confronting this moment, each moment, any moment, just as it is. And that in that confrontation, in a way, not in a conflict sense, but in a a willingness to put our, in a way, our nose, our face, right close up to it, so there's a real intimacy of meeting with this moment, where we have no agenda, no agenda, other than to be there fully. In that connection, in that meeting, there's, a, there's an imminent possibility, there's that way we touch our potential for liberating understanding. We, we open ourselves. We open ourselves. The Buddha once said, that there is, if that this world was just comprised of that which is subject to birth and death, there would be no escape from birth and death. But that because there is that which is not subject to birth and death, which is not conditioned, compounded, and subject to coming and going, therefore there is freedom from and in the midst of that which is subject to birth and death, that which is compounded and conditioned. 
And that really our practice and each moment is a process and an invitation to us to discover what this means for ourselves. To discover what this might mean in our lives. And in the realization of this, in the understanding of this, we realize a life that is not bound by unsatisfactoriness, that is not defined by the unreliable changing circumstance and experience that constitutes the flow of day-to-day and life-to-life existence. We see that in this, in this understanding of in this understanding of the fact that we are not separate, that we're not bound to these experiences in a way that divides us from the totality of life. In understanding that we become, or we start to sense a freedom from that separation that goes with it. A freedom from the sense of being separate, of being individual. A freedom from that disconnection. And in that dissolution, in that softening and ultimately dissolving of that separation, what we understand, what we experience is that no sense can hold us. That we're not trying to escape from a fence, so to speak, to get to the other side. It's not like we, we're in the grip of self and we have to somehow get out of the grip of self. But that more we understand that the fence itself is just an appearance. The sense of separation is just an appearance, that it does not bind us, that it has not that power over us. That we understand that this truth of non-separation, this is the truth that leads us to our freedom. And this is the truth which sets us free. We understand from this that emptiness that we speak of in Dharma teachings is not an emptiness of life, not an emptiness of the richness and vitality of existence, but it's an emptiness of separation. That separation, the idea, the concept, the image and the experience of it is ultimately not true, is not real. And that when we understand a life that is free from that separation, far from speaking about emptiness, we might perhaps more speak about fullness and richness. And yet know that there's no paradox in that. That emptiness reveals the fullness and richness of life. The emptiness of separation is the gateway, the understanding which is the gateway into that richness, that fullness. And this this understanding, this is the foundation and the invitation of insight meditation practice. And it's this which being present invites us to realize. To realize means to make real, to make it real in our life so we understand that its reality is deeper and more true than the surface appearance of things. So I'd like to just read a short quote from Ajahn Sumedho um, with regard to this theme. 
The word religion comes from the Latin word religio, which means a bond. It suggests a binding to the divine, which engulfs one's whole being. To be truly religious means you must bind yourself to the divine or to the ultimate reality and engage your whole being in that bond to the point where an ultimate realization is possible. So there's that sense of binding to the divine. What might that mean? Binding to the divine. Not talking about a grasping and a clinging on to, but an opening ourselves fully to this moment and to the divinity that is present and imminent within this moment and each moment. That is so close to us that we could never in any moment be apart from it. And when we understand this non-separateness, when we understand what that means, and even as we start to just get an inkling of it, we start to sense it perhaps without necessarily knowing quite what we're sensing, what we, what we discover is that this understanding of non-separateness quite naturally and organically expresses itself as a kindness and a compassion for others, for ourselves, and for all of life that we, we find the, the sense of may all beings be happy. May I be happy. May my friends, may equally those I have difficult with, difficulty with, may they be happy also. That sense of caring and that willingness to act for the welfare of others and oneself, it just flows naturally out of that sense of not being separate from. And in the way that the hand might rub the foot when the foot is sore, it's not that the hand thinks, I think I'll do a great act of charity now and rub the foot. It's not like sort of it's out there to be the sort of a, the bodhisattva of hands or to take on the the role of Mother Teresa, sadly departed this realm, but you know to be the Mother Teresa of hands and act in great compassion for the suffering feet of this world. It's just what happens, and we see how this this hand. We talk about hand. We talk about foot. Clearly they have a different function, a different appearance, but in this simple example, where are they separate? If we look, do we find the place? We might look in our body, where the one stops and the other begins. No. Hand and the foot are not separate. Equally we and others in life are not separate. And understanding that, we quite naturally live in accordance with that. Which doesn't mean that we dismiss our own well-being for the welfare of others, but that we understand and care for them equally. So, could we just have a moment quietly together? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.